This is Generation Justice, a multimedia, multiracial project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness. I'm Edgar Cruz. And I'm Junko Featherston. Tonight, we focus on what is happening here in our community. Professor Sherry Burr will introduce us to her new book, Complicated Lives, Free Blacks in Virginia, 1619 to 1865. Stay with us as we learn about the 2019 Black Cultural Conference, Blackness Unchained, from members of the African American Student Services Center at UNM, Devante Watson and Danielle Kirvin. We'll also keep you up to date on our community calendar events. As always, we have awesome music chosen by our youth producers, starting with They Can't Take That Away From Me by Ella Fitzgerald. Our romance won't end on a sorrowful note Though by tomorrow you're gone The song is ended, but as the songwriter wrote The melody lingers on They may take you Today, we are blessed to hear from the Emeritus Professor at the University of New Mexico, Sherry Burr. Professor Sherry Burr's latest research focuses on the free blacks of Virginia and the hundreds and thousands of African Americans who were free before the Civil War. She has published over 27 books in her lifetime, with her most recent being Complicated Lives, Free Blacks in Virginia. Now, Generation Justice's very own Katerie Zuni speaks with Professor Sherry Burr. This is Kateri Zuni with Generation Justice, and today I'm speaking with Professor Sherry Burr, Emeritus Professor of Law at the UNM Law School and President of New Mexico Press Women. Professor Burr is an accomplished author, and she joins us today to speak about her latest published book, Complicated Lives, Free Blacks in Virginia, 1619 to 1865. Professor Burr, welcome to Generation Justice. Thank you, Kateri. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Will you share with us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. I have been a professor at the University of New Mexico School of Law since 1988. And in the course of that time, I published 26 books. And my 27th book was just published at the end of July. And it's called Complicated Lives, as you mentioned. And one of the things that really interested me in the process of doing this research over the course of six years was how intertwined the fate of Africans and Indians seemed to be. So let's dive in. Can you introduce us to your book, Complicated Lives? So this book began in a serendipity kind of set of circumstances. I was reading through some letters that a great aunt had written to me, and I came across one where she was mentioning going to visit her aunt, Lillian, in Wyoming because Lillian had taken ill. And I started to wonder, what was a black woman doing living in Wyoming? Which, of course, is a strange question to ask since I'm a black woman living in New Mexico. And so I became very curious about this. And I happened to be researching another book up north. So I decided to stop in the town where Aunt Lillian had lived, went to the clerk's office, 
found where she lived, the address, went to the address, knocked on the door, introduced myself as the great-great-niece of Lillian Faye Todd, and the woman was sitting in a chair, and she said, come on in. And her name was Mrs. Lucy Hill, and it turned out she was from Wagon Mound, New Mexico. So I know, what are the chances of that? And she had had 18 children, one of whom she'd named after my Aunt Lillian. And when she bought my Aunt Lillian's house after she died, she also bought all her furniture, her rugs, her silverware, her knitwear. So it was like stepping into a family museum. So I became super curious about Aunt Lillian. And a couple months later, I was giving a talk in Salt Lake City, and someone suggested that I visit the Family History Library. So I thought, oh, I'll just stay there for 15 minutes. And three hours later, I'm walking out, the library's closing, and I have this stack of census records that show Lillian's father and my great-great-grandfather, George W. Hill, as having been born free in Virginia in 1847. This is the 1850 census record. So I started researching this family because I hadn't realized that there were free African Americans living in the South before the Civil War. Like many people, I believe the stereotypes that we were taught in school, that all blacks were slaves before the Civil War, and they only lived in the South, and all whites were slaveholders. Well, that turned out to not be true. And in the context of researching this, I found the emancipation deed for my fourth great-grandfather, who was freed from slavery as a two-year-old, along with his family in 1787. So this was right after the Revolutionary War. So that started this whole investigation of how many free blacks were living in Virginia? How did they become free? And so that led me back to 1619. And this year is the 400th anniversary of the arrival of Africans into Virginia, which became the first, it was the biggest colony, and it was the colony that set the most laws dealing with the progression into slavery. And so that's how I began this journey, which six years later led to the book and also an exhibition that's at the African American Performing Arts Center at the moment. I'm a little blown away, the idea that this woman was also from New Mexico. I know. It seems like a faded kind of encounter. Exactly. That's the way I felt. What are the chances? You know, you know, I'm looking for a black woman living in New Mexico, and I find a Hispanic woman living in New Mexico. And from one of the smallest communities, Wagon Mound, where I had had one of my former students had been from Wagon Mound. So it was quite a serendipity moment. It's kind of one of those moments that you get goosebumps and you want to pinch yourself. So I guess I'm wondering, what is the legal history that kind of complicates this narrative that we have of the introduction of black slavery in the Americas. The first thing to keep in mind is that the House of Burgess, the Virginia legislature, was set up in July 1619. We just had the 400th anniversary of that event, and Africans arrived in August of 1619. The very first time the word Negro, with reference to Africans, appear in a Virginia legislative proclamation is 1630. So it's 11 years later, and it's to order a white man whipped in front of a community of Negroes for having had sexual relations with an African woman. So I thought that was really curious. So then I tracked, started looking at all these other laws, and it seemed 
Virginia never officially declared all blacks are slaves. They never did that. So the weirdest law was in 1670, where they start out the question of Indian slavery has arrived, and we hereby proclaim that those who come by ship shall be servants for life if they are not Christian, and those who come by land shall be servants for a term of years. Well, we know the only people coming to the territory by ship were Africans, and the people coming by land were Indians. And there are also a series of laws dealing with well, what happens when we capture Indians in war? Can we consider them slaves? What happens to Indian children? So it was like this progression. And what you see over this period of time, it's that the fate of Indians and the fate of Africans seem to be combined in the legislative history. Up until even 1723, where Virginia declares that Indians and Negroes shall no longer have the right to vote. So that's another thing that's not well known is that Indians and Blacks were voting in Virginia over the course of almost 100 years in the case of people of African descent. How much of your book actually turns out to be a family history of your own? That's a good question. So I don't know if I can state a percentage, but I try to weave in the facts that I know about my family to illustrate the world that African Americans were experiencing. And the reason I did this is because for me, it became real because these were people who were connected to me. And when I found my fourth great grandfather had purchased land in Virginia, I found several documents where he had bought and sold land. So it became real to me that Africans had the right to own land. Land in Virginia. His wife, Celia, I knew she was a free woman because his children were free. free. Blacks were required to register, and they always registered as freeborn. And Virginia had passed a law around 1668 or so in the 1660s that had said that free women give birth to free children and enslaved women give birth to enslaved children. So I knew his children were free, but I was having problems locating Celia in the records. So finally, I went to the Library of Virginia in Richmond, and I spent several hours in the map room where they bring you boxes of ancient documents. And I was looking through registration records, and I found one referencing a Celia and an Esther who had been kidnapped out of Maryland, and someone had tried to sell them in Virginia. And they had went to this man named William Prentice and protested, saying they were freeborn. And he had told their alleged kidnapper that he had to go and get the paperwork showing that he owned these people. Because in those days, you couldn't just own a person. You had to have legal title to them. So people were treated like property. So you had to have title to them. And he never came back. And Finally, William Prentice wrote this letter that he had been seen in Petersburg. He'd never come back to claim them. So he believed that their statement that they were free born was actually true, and he released them. And I concluded that that was most likely my fourth great-grandmother, Celia, because that's such an unusual name. And so it made laws against kidnapping real for me because Virginia had passed laws saying that free blacks have the right to enjoy their freedom. and. 
it made what happened to Solomon Northrup, who wrote 12 Years a Slave, real as well, because he had been kidnapped out of Washington, D.C. and shipped to Louisiana and to Mississippi, where he had had to work on these farms. So I was really happy that my fourth great grandmother and her mother had had the good wisdom to protest because who knows what would have happened to them had they not protested that they had a right to their freedom. What do you hope that people or readers rather will gain from this book? Well, it's interesting that you asked that question because there's an epilogue where I talk about story replication. And one thing that struck me was how often what happened to African-Americans and Indians in this country was replicated in other countries. And for example, I show how Nazi Germany used laws that were regulating African-Americans to regulate Jews. So they basically modeled the who is a Jew law based on who is a Negro law that Virginia kept passing. And we know this because they specifically stated in their records that they were doing this. And then South Africa did the same thing with its indigenous peoples, where it was defining who was colored, who was black, who could live where, creating what they call Bantustans, which are what we would consider reservations, removing indigenous peoples from their land that they had occupied occupied for millennia into these really defined areas and some of which very little water and not very habitable. And so that is one thing that I hope people really understand is that we have to understand our history so we stop repeating it. Will you tell me a little bit about the exhibit at the African American Performing Arts Center? Yes, I'd be happy to. So the exhibition is called 400 Years of Freedom, Restrictions, and Survival, and it is up until October 26th. And in the exhibition, I use a combination of maps to show everybody but the indigenous people came from somewhere else because it disturbed me that we have politicians saying, go back to where you came from. And it's like, no, everyone's from somewhere else with the exception of indigenous peoples. So I use maps to show routes, the routes that the first Africans took to get here, the routes that the English took to get here, so that it makes it clear that who was occupying this territory when people started arriving in the 1600s. The other thing people will see when they first arrive is a picture of a recreated Powhatan village who were the Native Americans that the English first encountered. And there's a picture of Pocahontas, who's the most famous. And I thought it was important to put her picture there because a lot of people have misperceptions of what she looked like. And this is a portrait, a photograph of a portrait that hangs in the National Portrait Gallery. And I wanted to show what she really looked like as opposed to, you know, all these strange, mystical creations that have happened over the centuries. And then there are photographs of African Americans from the these early ages. There's a wall of laws that shows the progression of regulation of African Americans and Indians. There are actually several pictures of founding fathers and talking about what they wrote and said about slavery. And I wanted to, in that part, I wanted to bring up how 12 of the first 18 presidents were slaveholders, and Virginia gave the country four of the first five presidents, all of whom were slaveholders. And I wanted to show how much this became part of 
the country's culture. And they debated slavery. They all said slavery was bad. And it could have ended, in my mind, it should have never begun, but it should have definitely ended after the Revolutionary War. There also, there's an area, an alcove, where it depicts images, some of the worst images of slavery, including women on an auction block, the separation of children, people being flogged. But I also added some statues of African culture as a way of showing that even in the midst of all this horror, African culture survived. And then the last part of the exhibition relates to the Civil War. So there are pictures of John Brown, who is well known for Harper's Ferry, where he tried to arm slaves to have an insurrection, pictures of Lincoln and the things that he wrote about slavery, pictures of General Grant and General Lee. And the reason why General Lee's picture is in there, which some people might think that's unusual, is because I wanted to call attention to who he was as a person and the kinds of things that he did, because we're in the midst of these debates about these monuments, which were not added after the Civil War. He was not considered a uh, hero in the South after the Civil War. He had lost. And all these people had died. Their land had been destroyed. I mean, he was not looked upon as someone to raise on a pedestal. So that happened in the 1900s, in particularly in the context of the rise of the civil rights movement. So I write about how he had African slaves flogged, and then he would have his people add salt water to their wounds to combine the torture. He had free blacks kidnapped during the Civil War. So I want to show this is the person that you're debating. Where can folks go to find your book? So the book is available through Amazon.com. It's available locally at Bookworks on Rio Grande. People can also contact my publisher, Caroline Academic Press, which is cap-press. Dot com, so they can purchase it that way. So it's definitely available online. It's available locally through Bookworks. And I will be doing additional signings over the course of the several months. Thank you so much. And is there anything else that you would like to add? Well, I just want to encourage people to think about our history and think about it in a less romanticized way and how nuanced and complicated it was. Professor Burr, thank you so much for joining us here at Generation Justice and for sharing this incredible body of work that you've made um, and that you're sharing with our community. I appreciate it. Thank you, Kateri, for having me. It's my pleasure to be a guest on Generation Justice. Thank you so much, Professor Burr, for sharing your knowledge and expertise regarding your ongoing research towards the free blacks of Virginia. I personally did not know the rich history you have provided for us here today. Thank you, Professor Burr, for the richness of your work. Thank you for creating such a beautiful artistic thread of work depicting the intricate history of the U.S. We see you and I am so grateful to you. Check out the exhibit curated by Professor Burr featured at the African American Performing Arts Center through October 26th. Coming up next on Generation Justice is Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow by Fleetwood Mac, chosen by Professor Burr herself.
The University of New Mexico's African American Student Services Center is proud to announce the 2019 Black Cultural Conference. The theme of the conference this year is Blackness Unchained. Now, Media Justice intern Barbara Ramirez speaks with conference coordinator and members of African American Student Services, Devante Kurt Watson and Danielle Kirvin, on the 2019 Black Cultural Conference. This is Barbara Ramirez with Generation Justice, and I'm speaking with organizers of the 2019 Black Cultural Conference. Joining us today is conference coordinator Devante Watson and UNM student Donnell Kirvin. Welcome to Generation Justice. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Please share with us more about yourselves. So my name is Danielle Kirvin. I'm a senior here at the University of New Mexico, majoring in multimedia journalism and minoring in criminology. I am a active student in African-American Student Services. I'm actually their professional support intern, and this will be my third Black Cultural Conference. My name is Devante Kurt Watson, and I am the conference coordinator for this year's Black Cultural Conference, and I work out of the African American Student Services. Thank you, and thank you for being here. Tell us about African American Student Services. African American Student Services is one of the resource centers here on campus, and our target population is Black students. Our students actually call it the FRO. So we provide a lot of different services, both formally and informally for students. We have academic support, emotional support. We provide different workshops for professional development, also to assist with academics. A big part of our office is that we're a home away from home for students. So during the semester, you'll have students who are there from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. after hours studying, hanging out with friends, having different discussions. Our office is very unique that we operate like a family. So I'm what would you would call a fro baby. I started out in the fro through a summer bridge academy, and I've been there ever since while being here at the University of New Mexico. We also have a lot of different organizations that operate officially and both unofficially out of our office. So we have a Black Student Union. We have a powerful movement of educated sisters, Brothers Leading Cultivating Knowledge, a UNM NAACP chapter, and a Voices of Inspiration Gospel Choir. And then unofficially, we house the Black Greek Letter organizations. And it's really a space for Black students just to feel at home on campus because while UNM is a Hispanic-serving institute, they're in its minority majority, but there is a minority of the minority, and that's Black students. We're about 2% on campus, and that's about roughly... 600-something students, and we we make contact with each Black student, but last year we served about 450 Black students, so, and that's both academic advising, and sometimes it goes beyond just school, like how to deal with your parents or home emergencies, different things like that, so definitely a space where Black students can feel comfortable and have conversations that would otherwise not be had on campus or issues that wouldn't otherwise be recognized. Tell us about the upcoming 2019 Black Cultural Conference. Yeah, so the African-American Student Services sponsors an annual Black Cultural Conference, which is an intercollegiate conference on Black scholarship, social justice, and contributions of rising Black scholars. This year's conference theme is Blackness Unchained. We'll explore and evaluate the campus climates over college campuses and universities over the state of New Mexico and evaluate how they're supportive for Black students and the relationship for Black students and the universities and the overall environment. Can you share with us about the sponsors of the conference? 
We are working really closely with community and also our student organizations within African-American Students Services to make this year's conference possible. We're also working with presenters from institutions across the state of New Mexico and abroad. This year's conference is going to be really unique in the fact that we're focusing on a topic that we have not done before, which is mental health. And we're pulling in experts from the Student Health and Counseling Services Center on campus. One presentation that we'll have is from Dr. Stephanie McIver, who is the counseling director, to weigh in on this year's discussion topic. In the moment that we're experiencing in this country, what is significant about the theme of the conference? Well, just historically, I feel like Black people and mental health has always been an interesting topic because it's not something that's always addressed in our community, being that we have other things to worry about per se, like social rights, human rights. I would say someone believed there wasn't necessarily time to break down and think about your mental health. And I think now in 2019, a lot of our students are finding out that mental health is important, how to address it, different diagnoses that they may now be realizing about themselves. And it's not something that seems to be a priority of some universities. Like, I don't know if Black mental health is like a topic of discussion when they think about how to serve Black students on campus. What do you hope our community will gain from this conference experience? This year, we're really curating the workshops to take into consideration the type of resources and empowerment that students need and that community members need to foster uh, self-growth and to promote wellness within their own lives and also to take action within their communities. One of the guest speakers that we're having, her name is Erica Huggins, and she'll be talking about radical self-care on Friday during our luncheon. And she'll talk a little bit about how to balance advocacy, scholarship, and other activities that individuals may be engaged in and how to give to yourself before you can then give to your community, how to sustain the movement, and how to sustain personal growth. So I hope that our UNM community gains and understands that while our Black students on campus, they are social justice advocates, that it is hard to balance that and your mental health. So I know that last spring we had a problem on campus and our students addressed it, but a lot of them were experienced like a lot of feelings of being exhausted and not on the fact that exhausted that they didn't get enough sleep, but it's the fact that they're dealing with schools, being student leaders, and then also they're trying to battle the injustices on campus. I would say that a lot of our students experience some racial battle fatigue, but they don't know that that's what they're experiencing. So I hope that they learn more about that and then how to take care of themselves while still being advocate and social justice advocate. Tell us about the keynote speaker. So Erica Huggins is a Black Panther. She was very prominent in the movement. And a part of why I was very excited for her to come is because the Black Panther Party is very historic to the Black community. And I feel like any student organization, whether it be the Black Student Union or the Black Student Alliance, like the root of those organizations lies within like the mission of that party and the goals of that party. So her being a part of that definitely makes her someone that our students are excited to hear from and to learn from. Also, I feel like Erica Huggins has a unique perspective with addressing radical self-care because that's not something you really hear people talk about. 
Another big part of why we chose her was because of her history. So she's very prominent in the movement, but she also has a lot of pain that came from being a member of the Black Panther Party. Her husband was shot and killed on UCLA's campus as a result of their affiliation with the Black Panther Party and a feud that was being, like, fueled by the FBI. So she has a lot of deep-rooted history and a lot to bring to UNM. And this isn't her first time here, but she hasn't been here in a while. But this will be, I believe, one of the few times that she's been at UNM. So it's going to be really great to hear from her and to hear how she can help our students manage being um, social justice advocates and also taking care of themselves and their mental health. Where can people find more information? For anyone that would like to know more about the conference, they may go to afro.unm.edu. There you could find information for registration and also an agenda of the conference. And you can also, um, to stay up to date with what African American Student Services has going on, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at UNM Afro. And that's where a lot of the updates for the conference will be posted as well. And also the different events that are going on during the conference. Is there anything else you would like to add? We look forward to seeing everyone who would like to participate at the Black Cultural Conference on September 19th through the 21st. We're going to have a very impactful time. We would also like to invite students to the University of New Mexico African American Student Services. There are a plethora of resources there for sustaining as a student. And some of the empowerment tools that we'll be talking about in the conference, we provide year-round so that students could move forward as they matriculate. Thank you, Devante and Danielle, for being here with us and taking the time to inform our community about the 2019 Black Cultural Conference. We appreciate your time and we thank you for all the work that you do and for making this conference possible. Thank you for having us. For Generation Justice, I'm Barbara Ramirez. Thank you so much, Devante and Danielle, for informing our listeners about the 2019 Black Cultural Conference. You bring awareness and the importance of what it means to be a Black student at UNM. And how hard it is for African-American students to be social justice advocates on campus and in real life, all while maintaining their mental health. Devante and Danielle, we are so lucky to have you both on campus. Thank you for supporting and empowering Black students to engage with their complex identities. Our next two songs were chosen by our guests. Here is Say It Loud by James Brown, followed by Formation by Beyonce. Thank you both. With that Illuminati mess Paparazzi catch my fly and my cocky fresh I'm so reckless when I rock my Givenchy dress I'm so possessive so I rock his rock necklaces My daddy Alabama, mama Louisiana You mix that Negro with that Creole make a Texas Bama
Welcome back. You are listening to Generation Justice. It's time to share some exciting calendar events happening here in our community. First up, we have the 2019 Native Liberation Conference, a demonstration of solidarity with the Global South, happening on September 7th and 8th at the Al Moro Theater and Event Center located at 207 West on Cole Avenue in downtown Gallup, New Mexico. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or media questions, please reach out to the Red Nation website at therednation.org support or contact 505-750-7192. Next up, some exciting news GJ is happy to announce. The Cultivating Leaders Practicum for Young Adults of Ages 23 to 29. This practicum is open to recent college graduates or near graduates. The Cultivating Leaders Practicum will promote leadership, development, and skill building in a number of areas, including education, health equity, racial justice, and media, to create pathways towards economic stability for New Mexicans and our community. The deadline for applications for the practicum has been extended. If you are interested, please get your application in by Friday, September 6th. For more information, visit generationjustice.org or email us at admin at generationjustice.org. And that's it for our calendar announcements. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this hour of community resistance, resilience, and history. We'd like to thank our guests, Professor Sherry Burr, Devante Kurt Watson, and Danielle Kirvin. Tonight's Hour of Radio was produced by Kateri Zuni and Roberta Rael. And thank you to our interviewer, Barbara Ramirez, and of course to Nicole Beatty for community support. We want to give a big shout out to all of our youth producers. We could not do what we do without you. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM for bringing the voices of young people to you, KUNM listeners. Our website is generationjustice.org, where you can check out all of our multimedia work and listen to our podcasts, which are also available on SoundCloud and iTunes. We are also active on social media, so find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the Kon Alma Health Foundation, and of course, all of you, who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. Generation Justice would like to remind you that this program was broadcasted on stolen indigenous land. Our opening song of the night is Youth of a Nation by P.O.D. Our last songs of the night include Jazz by Tribe Called Quest, Like Sugar by Chaka Khan, Never Can Say Goodbye by the Jackson 5, and 20-something by SZA. I'm Junko Featherston. And I'm Edgar Cruz. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Thank you so much. Good night. Firm and young with a laid back tongue The aim is to succeed and achieve at 21 Just like Ringling Brothers, our days in a sound Captivate the cause the pros is profound Do it for the strong, we do it for the meek Boom it in your, boom it in your, boom it in your Jeep Or your Honda, or your Beamer, or your Legend, or your Benz The rave of the town to your favorite <laughs>
something 